We are looking at Isaiah chapter 25 today, which is um, apropos for um, what's going on today. Because uh, Isaiah is going to remind us, this is where we're looking again at the future. We're going to be in Isaiah 25, 1 to 12. This is session number five. God saves. And Isaiah is looking towards a future that he doesn't even understand. Um, and as we look at this, we know that the future that he's describing is going to come with Christ and his first coming and his second coming. So this is kind of one of those, it's about both, that when he comes, everything changes, which goes right along with what Chris has been talking about with, that the beginning of the end was when Christ came the first time, that, that we are in the end times. It's been since he showed up 2,000 years ago. This has been the end times. And Isaiah confirms that because he's, he doesn't make any distinction. He's going to talk about what's going to happen in this. So if you don't have your finger there, go ahead and stick it in chapter 25. Um, and we'll get started with that. There we go. All right, Isaiah chapter 25, 1 through 5. Somebody go ahead and read that for us. What is that? That? Why? What's wrong with it? Huh? It is a monospaced font. Wow. Okay. Which is what typewriters were. It's very readable. It, it, well, it's not an actual typewriter font. What difference does it make? It needs to be bigger. Well, somebody read it anyway. <laughs> Nobody ever reads it off the screen. I don't know why I even bother putting it up. Everybody reads it I up. I would read it off the screen, but you never flip as it goes along. So I do flip. I'm a little slow. <laughs> okay. Oh, Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name for imperfect faithfulness. You have done marvelous things, things you planned long ago. You have made the city a heap of rubble, the fortified town a ruin, the foreigner stronghold a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will honor you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in his distress, a shelter in the time of storm, and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm driving against a wall. And like the heat of the desert, you silence the uproar of foreigners. As heat is reduced by the shadow of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is stilled. All right, that's uh, pretty bleak for the world. As we look at this... <clears throat> Isaiah, this is one of several songs that Isaiah sings. It's a hymn, uh, essentially. And he has just come. The previous 23 chapters have been about what Israel was doing wrong in the first bit. And then judgment was pronounced on all the nations. If you remember, we looked at, a, we looked at one last week and all that. So this is kind of the, the wrap up, if you will. And he's talking here, he's singing about God and what he's going to do and what the world is like and why it isn't. So we are in um, 
um, part point four of our outline. It is the first cycle of general judgment and promise. Um, that's what uh, this is titled. Um, and as we see this, Isaiah is singing praise. Uh, he starts out, O Lord, you are my God, which in and of itself is an oddity um, that he's claiming personal connection to God. Uh, the Middle Eastern, remember, Israel is suffering from a mismatch of gods. They worship God, Jehovah. And they were worshiping all the other gods of the Canaanites and those people groups. And uh, those people groups, their gods were, the God, they were territorial, if you remember. So if you moved from here to, say, New Jersey, there would be new gods. There would be the Jersey gods, and you would worship them. The gods didn't follow you. So they weren't personal. They weren't your gods. And that's one of the things that the... Uh, Middle Eastern peoples struggled with with the Jews because everywhere the Jews went, they still worshipped God because he was always with them. He was universal. Um, and this was a concept that they just didn't have. Um, it is uh, one of the constructs of monotheism. One God. Peoples with one God. The, the Arabs... The Muslims, they, they worship Allah. He's everywhere. The, the idea that their God is here in America, he's there in, in their country. He fights not just their homelands, but he goes to other countries and wages war as well, which is why they do. That, that's a, that is a Jewish idea that no other group does. You, you get to Buddhism and all that, the, their ideas are that everything is God and there really isn't a God. And he's not personal and he's not, doesn't do a whole heck of a lot. He's nature or whatever. Or that they're localized, essentially demon lords that, uh, you know, or spirits, the ancestors, and they're tied to wherever they're at. I mean, a, a lot of places that our ancestor worship. Uh, the graves, that's where the ancestors live. They go, and it's um, Madagascar. They have a day where they go in and clean the bones every year. They bring the bones out of the tombs and they wash them, dry them, put them back in the tombs. Uh, the Koreans, they bury them on, on the mountainside where they overlook the village where the family lives so that they can oversee. The Japanese have, you know, centers where they go and they, they put incense every morning and they burn to the family and you know and, and all that so uh, thailand they have spirit houses they're really cool they, they are the most elaborate doll houses i've ever seen they put them on a post and they they put offerings to them and it's to keep the spirits of the the area so like businesses will have them and they they you know, will spend huge sums of they buy good alcohol and uh, cigarettes and and food. I, when we were, when I was there, I looked at this. And I'm like, what in the world is going on? I had to have somebody explain it to me. But the spirit house, it's to appease the local spirits. The idea that these deities, that a deity would be universal everywhere in the world and and personal, is uh, it, it isn't normal. It isn't how the rest of the world thinks. We as Christians, we only think that way. 
Uh, I mean, that's, that's how we are. But we have to remember, these people group, Isaiah is writing to the Jews of his day who have synchronized these gods, these deities with them, and with their own beliefs, and they have begun to forget this. That so he says, "Oh Lord, you are my God." You, it's it's personal. It's not. It's a relationship between me and Him. It isn't just some generic force that's out there. It isn't just some local spirit. And he comes and he sings this song about how he's going to praise His name. We see that there are two kinds of people. In this, what kind of what two kinds of people are there? Strong people and needy people. Strong and needy people. What is the hallmark of God's rules for man? Besides worshiping him. Help your neighbor. Help your neighbor. Do you realize that most of the laws that God gave us were so that those that were the lesser people, think about it, the rules for orphans, even orphans in our society have very little hope. I mean, let's face it, um, orphans, they, they end up in the foster care system and the outcome percentages for a good outcome are abysmal. Um, huh? I said absolutely. Yeah. Or, orphans ha- have no refuge, no resource, and little hope that, that, that things will turn out well. Widows. We've, got, we've come a long way. We, widows have at least legal standing um, in all that nowadays. And, and depending on what they do, they, they may be able to earn a living and all that. But in their day, uh, a woman with no husband and no sons that she was widowed had no standing, had no legal representation, uh, couldn't inherit. Uh, we've, we've changed a lot of those rules, but in the rest of the world, that's not true. I mean, you look at the Middle East. What rights do women have? What rights does a widow have with no male family? Same is true in the Far East. Uh, look at Eastern Europe. They, they sell girls into, into um, prostitution. and all. I mean, just look at the human trafficking uh, conundrum that we have today. Nobody can figure out what to do with it. And it's mostly girls. So widows, uh, they, they have no standing. Um, widows, orphans, and those that are the foreigner. Remember those weird rules about the foreigner, the sojourner? Somebody, I mean, think about it. Foreigners who come to the United States, they come with whatever they got on their backs, whatever they brought with them in suitcases. Now, we've got some serious rules and regulations. Who can get in the country? I mean, it costs a lot of money to get in and all that. But back in the day, I mean, we've got, we help um, the uh, foreigner, whether they're legal or illegal. We, we do an awful lot as a nation to help them. Why? Because that's what God said to do. 
the taking care of the foreigner, the soldier. But you think about it, the, you get beyond our rules and, and regulations and handouts and all that. You go to another country as a foreigner, you're abused. I mean, back, go back just to the 20s. Foreigners would show up. They didn't speak English. They had no idea. They would sign a contract or agreements, and they would work the mines. Um, they would work in factories for ridiculously low pay. Uh, and all that. just look at the way that the, the Ma- Mexicans are treated out in the West, where they work those farms and vineyards in California and all that for next to nothing. And they have no resource and all that. That's unacceptable. God gave us rules and regulations. We are responsible for those people. There are two kinds of people. Those that have and, have, and, and can do and those that don't. And those that have and can do are expected to do something about it. They're expected to treat these people with respect, with care, like they would want themselves to be treated. I mean, that, that is, from the word go, God has given us those commands. Because he expects the strong not to use their strength for themselves. And it's... Interesting that he himself models this for us. The whole point of salvation. God who needs nothing from us, we have nothing to offer him, sends his son to pay our fee and then grants us, doesn't just say, okay, now you can come to heaven. You've, you've paid off the debt. Your, your, your salvation is good. He doesn't just say, okay, now you can enter into heaven and you can be the street sweepers. You, you can work at the local... Um, um, 7-11? Yeah, 7-Eleven or whatever. No, he brings us up and says, no, now you're going to be my adopted children. You're going to be like sons and daughters to me. This is the strong reaching down and saying, hey, don't, don't, you're, you don't belong down there. You belong up here with me. That, I mean, he models it for us. And we see this in the Old Testament. But what was going on in Israel at this time that Isaiah is looking at and he's been talking about back here is that they're grinding out money and power from the little guy. Now, understand, God is not a physio-psycho-social systems manager. This isn't about communism under God, that's, that's not the way it is. What we have to understand is this is who God is. This is his character. We, we know that there are benevolent people in the world. I mean, all we got to do is, is look, there are those who are rich and they own 15 Ferraris and they got gold chains down to here and they're, they're in the news every other week for some drunken escapade or whatever. You know what I'm talking about? And then there are those that you don't really hear about often, but they build new wings on children's hospitals or uh, they, they've sent money to this institution or that institution to help whatever it is that's going along. And it, maybe it is a lot, maybe it isn't a lot, but they have a nature that it is because that's what God's nature is. This is not just something that God is trying to do. It's not a control issue. God's nature is to look out for his creation. 
he's a God of power and a plan. And as we look at this, these five verses, we see that there's this, this city. Now, many people have spent a lot of time trying to figure out what city it's referring to. Um, I don't believe that it's an actual city. I believe it's the world. It's the, he's talking about the whole world and as, a, as the city uh, that is going to be made a heap. I mean, if we start looking at this in terms particularly of Revelation, and as Paul talks about Christ coming, uh, this begins to make a lot of sense. Uh, it, that fortified city is going to be ruined, um, and it will be no more, and it won't be rebuilt. Um, God's going to remake the world. We know that. Revelation tells us that it's going to be decimated at the end, and he'll remake it without sin. Um, Man's, as we look at this, man has great pride in what? Yeah, what we've done. Oh, look at us. It's funny because God doesn't have pride in himself. And we, we take his stuff and we make, it's like, you know, you, you, we, we, when we were kids, my father was a carpenter and he would build stuff and he would cut off the ends of the two by fours. And we would take the leftover scraps and build stuff with them. We'd waste all these nails and screws and, <laughs> and stuff. And we're, we'd bring it to him and he'd be like, we wanted, you know, look at what we did. This is really cool. And it's just junk. I mean, it wasn't anything phenomenal or anything. I mean, it was just the leftover scraps. But that's what we were doing. We're taking God's leftover, you know, what's he, what he's created here. And we, we're nailing it and gluing it together and going, look at what we did. Aren't we really incredible? You know, and, uh, you know, as adults, I, I look at what my father built. My father built windows and doors out of wood that he tore out of a bank and two sliding glass doors that he took apart for the, for the window panes. It was phenomenally beautiful. He stained it. And I mean, it was just amazing. And I'm like, yeah, see what I did? <laughs> but that, that's, we, we, we have so much pride in our junk. Great, we, we've built these wonderful bridges or towering structures. Uh, but as we look at the amazement of how the cellular structure of just a leaf with all its parts and how it works together is phenomenal. Let alone like the endocrine system or whatever in a human body that's like, wow, really? Um, we also see in here that, that God has a plan. He is going to be our refuge. It is him that we were to put responsibility in. Nobody put their responsibility on the gods back then. The gods were beings that you appeased. We were... We needed protection from them. We needed to fear the gods. They didn't go to God and, and cower beneath him from our enemies and expect him to do something. They would call on the gods to wage war against enemies, uh, but he wasn't, they, they, the idea wasn't a refuge. Even in that today, as we look at other monotheistic religions, God isn't a refuge, certainly not for Islam. Uh, Allah is not a God. You, you, you don't go to him. You're, you're, you go out and fight for him. The world is at war with, with him, and it's your job to die. 
whereas we expect God to fight for us. He's our refuge. He is um, powerful. He's mighty. We talk about how he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. We don't need to worry about the financial because he'll take care of it. What, how it's going to play out is he's going to do it. Um, the greater responsibility is on the greater individual. I mean, it sounds like communism, but it isn't. It isn't socialism. It isn't government that does it. It's the individual. And that's where the difference is. See, in communism and socialism, it's the government ruling over everybody and just makes everybody equal. But that's not what it's calling for. That's not what God does. God deals with the individual. It's easy to just say, okay, you all get one loaf of bread a day. That's it. Well, what if you're gluten intolerant? Well, communism says, well, that's your problem. We gave you a loaf of bread. We took care of you. We did our job. God doesn't work that way. God knows each of us personally and all that. And that's what he's singing about as we look at this. Isaiah recognizes God and the rules he gave and why? Because it's his personality and who he is. Pride in ourself sees the lesser subservient to the greater. God in himself being greater shows us how it works by dying for us. So Isaiah is singing this. And he continues, chapter 25, verses uh, 6 through 8. Somebody go ahead and read that. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Okay, what does this sound like? Promise of heaven? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do we call this? What's the New Testament call this? Marriage feast of the Lamb. There you go. Sharon's got it. Yes. It sounds like the marriage feast of the Lamb. There's, the description here is death being defeated and presenting those who accept it and eating this marriage feast. Yeah. So it goes all the way back. It's not something in the New Testament, is it? All that, it wasn't New Testament ideas. It wasn't that. Here's Isaiah. He's talking about this all the way here. Paul talks about the feasting in heaven. He's probably getting it from Isaiah because he's still writing his books. (laughs) Feasting together. It's a festival. People had feasts. We don't do it so much today because everybody's watching their waist and counting calories and carbs and how many trans fats did you... Feasting was just that. You feasted, and it only happened occasionally. It was good. <laughs> yeah, it was. I mean, we, we look at this, a feast of well-aged wine. The older it gets, the better it gets. The longer it sits and all that. It's, the description here is costly, expensive, aged wine is being served. The rich food, the feast, is going to be of the fatted portions 
It is interesting to me, what was done with the fatted portions of a beast? It was what was offered as a sacrament. Would it not be interesting to discover that the feast that is being going to be laid out for us in heaven are all those portions that were offered on the altar all those years that God stored them up for us? <laughs> that's just a weird idea, but that's what he's talking about. The very portions that were offered to God are going to be given to us to eat. The best parts which were God's are now served to us, we offer them to God. And what does he do with it? He's going to turn around and give it to us. Think about that in terms of, of offerings and tithes. I mean, that is, a, that is a crucial teaching in the church, is that we offer God whatever part of what we make. And he gives it back to us. and turns around and gives it back to us in, uh, in things, in ways, and in all that. And here's Isaiah. He's, he's got the same thing. We're going to have a feast. There is going to be food. And we're going to sit and wine and dine at the best of the best with God. <laughs> the joy here will not abate. God will remove death. This is a time that it's not going to end. It's going to become a lifestyle. Can you imagine he is going to remove, now it hasn't happened because the language is future tense. This is something he will do. And we know Christ comes and he defeats death, right? That's the whole point of the New Testament is he comes, he defeats it. So this has already happened from our perspective. But for Isaiah, he's writing, he's singing this song, telling the nation of Judah, there is coming a time that death will be lifted and all of our feasting, it will be with God himself, and it's going to be the best. Mind you, these people just don't get it, though. They don't listen. He's trying to convince them to come back because he's already pronounced. This is the carrot. All the judgment. He's already proclaimed all that judgment. We looked at last week. We talked about how all the nations are being judged. He's talking about all the foreigners. So people that are going to be outside of the nation, they're going to be here. Those of us that are Gentiles. We're, we're invited to the table. We're part of this. All of this is happening. Isaiah is laying all this out, trying to get them to see. And we know what the outcome is. They don't listen. They don't pay attention. Uh, they, uh, I, Isaiah takes a beating by these people because they don't like what he's saying. They want their petty little gods. They want their petty little... Um, parties and, and groupie meetings under the trees. <laughs> yeah, well, it, there you go. They get to do it their way. I get to be the Lord and grind you little peasants out because that's the way it should be. Might makes right. Well, if that's the case, then God's in charge, isn't he? <laughs> Nobody's mightier than him, but nobody likes that idea. Uh, but, we, yeah, let's be benevolent to each other. No, no, we can't do that. Whew. All right. Continue on with this song. Isaiah 25, 9 through 12. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest upon this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in this place, 
as straws trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it, as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands, and the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low and cast to the ground with dust. Are you beginning to notice a theme? What's Isaiah's theme in this? Yeah, pride is the biggest issue. Remember, if we go back to where we started in chapter one with this, they were doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. They were and boasting in it. We look at the Pharisees, how annoyed Christ was with them. The harshest comments he ever gave were to the Pharisees and Sadducees, doing all the right things for all the wrong reasons, and then being prideful about it, boastful. He isn't going to put up with it, is he? I got to say, the, the worst thing that we can probably do is, is be prideful, being boastful. Looking at ourselves and thinking greater about ourselves by putting somebody else down. That seems to be a serious issue. We see that here, trusting in God. These people uh, want to trust in themselves, which putting faith in yourself is... Um, is exalting yourself to the level of God. <laughs> He's the only one we're supposed to put our faith in, right? Uh, it, it interests me. They, they're going to be trampled down in a dunghill. They're gonna, they're, their faces are going to be... The, you've seen barnyards. <laughs> they're they're going to be laid out and walked on, having their faces pushed in it. And... The guy, the individual, the person is going to put out his hands and try and swim in it. Try and, the idea here is he's trying to tread water in it. I don't know if you've ever seen like serious pig farming. They have huge cisterns behind where the pigs are and they just keep washing all the poo into it. The idea is that somebody fell into something like that and they're trying to, trying to swim. And I mean, that's what our pride is like. That's what it, that's... It's a sinking cesspool uh, of filth. Do we under, I mean, the imagery here is to get our attention. Do we understand what our pride is like? We put our faith in ourselves and our own abilities and our own whatever, whatever skill we have, whatever, and we think that we're all that and then some. And it doesn't matter how much pride. I mean, I... LeBron James has been in the news quite a bit lately as he's uh, trying to convince people of his political position. And he, because he's a basketball player, the world needs to know his, I mean, he said it, that I, 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 the, everybody needs to know what I think because of who I am. I mean, how arrogant. I mean, that's a lot of arrogance. But it's, you know, we think of him in terms of this sort of thing, but it isn't even just that. 
It's our own little arrogance, our own little faith. I can fix this. I can solve that problem. Yeah, go ahead. But don't you think others kind of help boast that? Oh, like, sure. You know, like, he might have, like, oh, I think I'm really good, but then you have these people, oh, wow, you're really great. So are we all kind of, like, guilty in, in helping? If I'm okay, you're okay. That is the world's mentality. That is the whole point with making things legal that are immoral. Just because something's legal doesn't mean that it's moral. We, we have forgotten the difference between morals and ethics in this country. And we think by legalizing something, well, now it's okay. And so, okay, that's you, what you want to do. We'll make that legal. And this is what I like to do. So let's make that legal. And so my sin is okay because we said so. And your sin's okay. So we're all good. And God will be good with that. I mean, that is, uh, that is the sickest mentality we can have. We, so we, we butter each other up. Uh, really, that's, that's what it is. We're, we're, we're sophisticants. You know, okay, so you're going to make my sin okay. Now, uh, selling of indulgences. Go back to the Catholic Church. What made those sins okay to do? Because you had a piece of paper from, signed by the Pope. All right, now we have a piece of paper signed by, what is it, 586 members of Congress. Does that make it okay? If God says that it was wrong... Which men can decide that it's not wrong? What man can say that this is okay? Wrong is either wrong. See, we've eliminated the very idea of absolutes, which means you get rid of God. And God becomes situational me. Whatever situation I'm in, I decide that was good for me. That's it. There's nothing higher than me. That's the world we live in. Um, I mean... You have people that are taking the stand trying to justify every heinous crime imaginable. And, well, you don't understand. You weren't there. Okay, case dismissed. I can't. I, I couldn't be. I couldn't. I can't know. I wasn't there. We weren't present. We don't have anything. Does that still make it right? Does it make it okay? That's, that's exactly what Isaiah is talking about here. We have made ourselves the highest authority. He is a sovereign deliverer. We are not pawns in a cruel game of chance. He knows what's going on. He is in charge. He is sovereign. We we forget that. Just because he allows things to happen and he allows people to live in their sin and delude themselves and doesn't throw lightning bolts from heaven... And it's a good thing because he's giving us a chance to change. He doesn't zap us the first time we step out of line. He lets us run with it. He gives us enough rope to hang ourselves. Yeah, you're you're right. We do. We hang ourselves quite often. Um, But we have to remember what he wants. What is it that God wants? Okay, yes, he wants worship, but in terms of us. Relying on him. Yeah, he wants us to rely on him. To love our neighbor. He wants us to love our neighbor. But he wants us to love our neighbor not because we have to. We want to. We want to. He doesn't want just worshipers. He could create anything to worship him. I mean, he said the stones would cry out. He wants us to choose he doesn't want dogmatic, robotic, 
people. I mean, that's what they've been doing. That was what Israel was doing, right? Yep, showed up, brought my cow. We burned it. I went home, did my own thing. No, he wants us to look at him and say, no, I'm going to follow the law. I'm going to follow the law as best I understand it in every avenue because that's what God has asked of me and I want to do it. I want to, I want to serve him. I want to dedicate myself to him. And yeah, we make mistakes, we fail, but our choice is to him. I mean, that was the whole point that Chris made with Cain and Abel last week. Abel chose to worship God and bring the right sacrifice. Cain brought a sacrifice. It's not that he didn't do what he was supposed to do. He did, but he didn't do it right. He didn't do it with a, with a heart towards God. He thought the whole thing was stupid. He ignores God when God tells him, hey, you're going down the wrong path. Did he pay attention? What do you know, God? I can handle this. And he goes out and he ends up killing his brother. We see it over and over and over again in Scripture. The whole thing with the flood. You're supposed to spread out across the whole world and fill it, right? Nope, we're going to build a city so that we aren't scattered. It's the very opposite. We, we, we are obstinate against God. And he gives us that rope. All right, keep going, keep going. And then he shows up. What'd you do? Oh, you built a city. You built a tower. All right, we're going to fix that. Oh, you ate the fruit. Didn't I tell you not to? You thought it was, you were better off without me. Okay, now you're going to be without me. See, he's a sovereign and he has provided deliverance. I mean, everybody tries, it's amazing how the world tries to paint him as a bully. Right? The world tries to say, well, it, you know, your God isn't loving. I mean, just look what he requires. You know, you're supposed to do this, that. Uh, but he's in charge. We're not in charge, so we don't get to judge God. We want to judge him based on our own preferences. But this is his world. It's like the fish in your fish tank. They climb up to the edge and complain about the, the, the goldfish food you're feeding them. What happens? All right, well, I'm not eating it anymore. They die. And then you're like, well, you did it to yourself. I mean, just think about it. We're the goldfish. <laughs> we want to complain. Well, we're not going to do it that way. We want homosexuality to be okay. We like it. So we're not going to follow your rules. Okay. Now we have AIDS and all these other illnesses that come with it. He gave us enough rope to hang ourselves and we're hanging him. See, that's, he's, he's the sovereign deliverer. If we follow him, he's going to take care of it. He's in charge. We're not just pawns. There's not some galactic game of chess going on, and he's moving us around the board. Now, I know a lot of people who think that. I won't follow God. I'm not his lackey. But, it, but we're not lackeys. We're the, we're the worthless underlings that have nothing to offer him that he says, you know what, I just want to take care of you. Let me take you in. Let me feed you. That's what Isaiah is singing about. Man's pride will sink them. That's this whole thing. If we continue in our pride, in our ability to say, I don't need God. I don't want him the way he's offered himself. I want him on my terms. Well, you know, he'll give us what we want. 
See, that's the whole thing. Hell is for the people who don't want to be with God because it's a place where God is not. And everything that God is, is absent there. God is love. God is mercy. God is grace. God is beautiful. All, all those attributes, they come from God. So if you take God away, you take all those things away, what you're left with is whatever hell is. You don't want God, you don't want beauty, you don't want love, you don't want mercy. Okay, here's a place where I am not, and you're going to stay there. I'm giving you what you want. It's punishment in that sense because we don't understand. We want our cake and eat it too. The problem is, is that we think we can save ourselves, but we cannot save ourselves. We just can't. It's like a guy trying to pull himself up by his own bootstraps. We can't, it's just not possible. I remember as a child hearing that for the first time, I think probably from my father, and standing in the family room with my boots on, with the strings in my hand, trying to pull myself, because I didn't believe him. I was one of those obstinate children. <laughs> trying to pull myself up. What do you mean I can't do this? I'm going to do this by sheer force of will. You know what I learned? <laughs> Literally, you can't do it. You can jump all you want, but you can't pull yourself up. I tried doing that in the barnyard in Buck and Meyer. I'm not the only one. <laughs> you know, I, yeah, I, I went to the school of hard knocks, but it was the extended session. I got a PhD in it. Yeah, there you go. Thank you, Carl. That's good. I got to remember that. This is a cycle of general judgment and promises because Isaiah is going to tell them over and over and over again, which is the whole point that God is sovereign. He doesn't want us to suffer. He wants to deliver us from ourselves. That's what we don't remember. Is he, yeah, oh, he's going to save me from my sin. He's going to let me into heaven. But it's, he's saving us from ourselves. We are the cause of our own misery, not him. We want to blame him for it. We want to blame the government. We want to blame... All the good stuff is coming from him. If we do it his way, it works out. It may cost us something in the short run, but by doing it his way in the long run, we gain everything. All right, let's wrap this up and call it a day. Wow. Yeah, we're going to get... This is a short one, but it's... It's crucial to understand because the judgment is coming on Judah. They're going to be carried off into captivity. They're going to suffer. And they're still not going to get the point. But Isaiah is, I mean, he's just preaching this thing over and over and over again as we go through this. First away, we see God will wipe away all tears. The idea here is that's the effects of sin. We are miserable. Because of sin. We have created this conundrum that we're in by sinning. Going all the way back to Adam and Eve when we, we were in a garden of perfection. Life was good. We didn't have to work hard. We didn't have to do a whole lot of anything. God was there with us. 
If we wanted to know anything, we could go and talk to him. I mean, Adam and Eve had the, everything that mankind keeps complaining about. Why doesn't God just talk to me? He did. We didn't listen. Now he doesn't. He's given us a, a book with everything we needed to know. And until we sort that out and do that, why would he tell us anything more? We can't get that right. The effects of sin have caused our tears. It isn't just unhappiness. If you look at the root of all our unhappiness, it's sin. Somebody's, ours or somebody else's. He's going to remove our disgrace. This is our standing from sin. We stand before God as sinful beings, but he tells, Isaiah tells us he's going to remove it. We're going to be in his presence and be able to eat a feast with him. You can't do that if your sin is still there. We can't be in his presence. So he's going to remove our disgrace. Isaiah has no clue how this is going to work out. He just is telling Judah, the day is coming. Thirdly, he's going to destroy death, which is the outcome from sin. Death, we brought death upon ourselves. We are meant to be eternal beings. You understand that? When we were, God created us, he meant us to have eternal life, to live forever. It's no wonder why when somebody dies, we're so upset. Those relationships were expected to be eternal. Our friendships, our families. It's no wonder why we are so upset, why we're so sad when these things happen. Because they were meant to last forever. We were designed this way. The connections that we make with people were designed to be eternal. Can you imagine? The outcome of sin is death, and it's going to be destroyed. And we know that Christ has now come and conquered it. Those who relish in sin will be removed. If you like your sin so much, you get to keep it. <laughs> but that, that is what he says. You don't want to give up your sin? God says, okay, you can have it. I will give it to you to its fullest extent, and I will put you in a place where you can't hurt anybody else with it, and you can enjoy it for eternity. Sounds like giving us our rope again. Well, but then you're hung with it and you have no chance to change. That is a scary thought. To have your own way forever. I know that there are people that would be like, yeah, that's what I want. Yeah, but you don't get God then with any of his ways. That's it. Human pride and God cannot coexist. Because it's a lie. We talked about that last week. It's not that, he, that he's got something against us and that he needs to be puffed up and all that. It's because it's a lie. Pride in ourself is a lie. It is all God's doing. All right. Let's close in prayer. Lord, it's such a simple lesson. 
It seems so easy, but Lord, without you, it's impossible to live. Father, help us as we go about our daily lives, not just the times when we're sitting and contemplating you or thinking about you or studying you, but Lord, in the little things that we do, that we follow that which you gave us. Lord, taking care of others, looking out for those who are beneath us. Lord, help us. Help us to act more like you and to recognize that you are our source for pride, not ourselves. In your name we pray. Amen.